I, I want to just give a couple thoughts as we work our way towards this uh, yet another spot in the Sermon on the Mount. I was just struck this week. I jot a few things down every week that I kind of want to cover. Sometimes they have something to do with the Word and sometimes they don't, but they're just thoughts that I have that I like to share with you or with the audience or uh, and just to, it's kind of public wrestling, really. It's wrestling things out and talking them out. Um, just really struck this week by, by the, uh, what happens when you have a revelation of Jesus and you really fall in love with Christ. And I don't mean the day you get saved or what leads to you getting saved, whatever that word means to you. Believe me, getting saved means a lot of things to a lot of people. Um, I mean afterwards. I mean subsequent to your walk with God when you have a fresh revelation of Jesus and you just start to see him as you haven't seen him before. And that, that struck me that I really want to see a renewal of that in the body of Christ, of we're in love with, you know, we're, we're quick to talk about what we love. And we've, it's like we've kind of got all the right spiritual pegs in the right spot. Like, I love my church. Um, I love the Bible. I love the unlovable. I love my neighbor. I love my enemy. Um, let's have a renewal of I love Jesus. Because I think when you love Jesus and you really fall in love with Jesus, the Bible reads differently. The church feels differently. Sometimes we can get so into the other things then it becomes harder to find Jesus. If you find Jesus first, the other things become more bearable. Like people struggle with their church. If you fall in love with Jesus, you kind of overlook some of the things you struggle with in your church or with your neighbor or with your enemy. Love covers a multitude of sins doesn't just mean that God's love forgives people of their sins. I think it means that as your love grows, it covers up the areas that, that maybe would have been glaring without love. You know, like that speck that you would only accentuate and think about, but then when you're in love, you don't see the speck, that, that kind of thing. So as we fall in love with Jesus and then the word comes to life, and I think once that happens, we'll, we'll, we'll be done with what I think is sometimes a real thin soup of preaching and teaching. You know, just it's sort of, it's got all the, it's got the right phrases in the right places, but it doesn't stick to your ribs afterwards. Like you eat a bowl of soup and it tastes good going down and you're like, ooh, this is great. And then 30 minutes later, you're hungry again because it's just something didn't quite keep you there. And that, that's how I feel a lot of times when I hear the word talked about and taught and preached. And I know you do too. And I'm, and I'm not beyond being a soup slinger myself. I mean, you know, it can be vapid and it can be thin, but where it focuses you on Jesus, that's a better chance it's going to stick to your ribs. Some, you grow where you see Jesus. You grow where you have an encounter with him and his finished work and where you see that resurrected one. And as we're heading into Easter, I'm, I guess I'm just thinking about that more and more. Why are we even Christians? Is it because we found the guy with the best principles? Like his list of rules are better than the other guy's list of rules? Is that why we follow him? Or are we truly resurrected people? We really believe we died in Christ and we live in him and that there's a a hope for something better. And I, I personally am doing my own inventory. And, and, and not just because it's Holy Week and Easter coming up, but because that inventory seems necessary to me to really, and this is a word you're going to hear me use tonight a little later in this lesson, and that is to really self-evaluate 
um, not because by self-evaluating I have to, that's how I become righteous or that's how I become saved or that's how I become anointed. No, but self-evaluating because I could possibly be valuable in the world to someone, maybe just to Natasha, maybe just to Lauren, but possibly if I self-evaluate in the light of Christ, maybe I could be valuable to you too. And, and, and that's something you have to self-evaluate, that in the light of Christ in me, the hope of glory, I could be valuable to my coworker or to my next door neighbor or to my enemy. I don't, I don't think that's going to happen because you've picked up a few good Jesus principles. But when you've encountered Jesus and had an encounter with Jesus, a real revelation, then there's something that starts the work of transforming. It doesn't finish it, but it starts the work of transforming. We're not at the top of any certain mountain. All we've, at best, we've hit a plateau. There's always something else. There's always some other thing to know of him and to learn of him and, and him letting us do that. That's the thing. Tonight's title has a very personal pronoun in it for a reason. Um, I titled this The Plank in My Eye. I wanted to title it the plank in your eye. And then I sort of gave up and thought, well, the plank in our eye, or maybe just the plank in the eye. But I truly felt I heard from the Holy Spirit. I'm locking this thing down for the final stretch today and, and couldn't get away from the Holy Spirit wrestling in me. No, personalize it and do it for this reason. And this will become more clear, I think, as we go. The plank is always in my eye. And so if you can say that, then you're, you're on the way to where you need to be tonight. That it's not in her eye, his eye. It's not his problem, their problem. It's not even our problem because that kind of takes the pain off of it a little bit. If I go, you know, we got an issue in the church. Okay, nice job throwing in the we there so that we all have the same issue. When in reality, Jesus doesn't deal in the we. He deals in the you. You notice this in his teaching. He makes you own everything. He doesn't just let you go. You know, we got a real problem in our local church. Oh, we got an issue in our family. We got, I love to use ours and we's, but I'm not as big on me, not as big on I. And I know why, because that means I don't get to deflect. So get ready. You don't get to deflect tonight. Jesus is not going to let you deflect. He's going to be very pointed and bring out, and I want to try with him to bring out um, what is probably one of the more popular moments in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's one of the moments that um, there's going to be two things that feel like they kind of bleed over in this story where it almost is going to feel like we shouldn't have read one with the other. So you're going to see and, and think, hmm, maybe Jesus is changing the subject here because there's no real warning in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not like he gets done with one segment and goes, oh, and then there's words in black where the author, Matthew, goes, and then Jesus changed the subject. And so, no, it's just all written in red. It's just boom, boom, boom. You really got to follow along. So sometimes, yes, feels like a change of direction because it is. Sometimes it feels like a change of direction and don't turn too quickly. It's not as much of a change as you think. And we're, I think we'll see that. So what I want to do is read the entire block. It's just six verses. And then we're going to come back and work through it. You're going to notice, I think, at the sixth verse, there's a little change in tone, but I want you to know that it's all one thought tonight. Let's go to work on it together on the plank in my eye from Matthew 7, the third of three chapters in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter kicks off with judge not that you be not judged. 
For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? This is, of course, the source of my title tonight, the plank. Planking for us is a gym term, you know, somewhere akin to a push-up, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. Do you not consider the plank or the beam might be, I think the old King James might even use that. Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. There's obvious tongue-in-cheek humor, exaggeration, uh, alliteration going on in Jesus' language, but that doesn't lessen... The, the tongue-in-cheek makes the medicine go down, all right? It's like comedians can tell truths that other people can't tell because they make you laugh when they tell it, but it's not funny if it's not true, you know? Like, it's not funny if it doesn't make sense, but if it makes sense, it stings, but it's also funny. It's almost as if Jesus is putting a little sugar in the spoon to help the medicine go down, but it doesn't mean the medicine isn't strong. So yes, there's a little humor. Yes, the illustration's silly. Doesn't really make sense. No one in the real world can ever have a plank hanging out of their eye socket. We get it. You gotta go along with it. This is where your biblical literalism will really get you in trouble and confuse you to no end, is what could Jesus possibly mean. By the way, I don't, most people that think they're literalists aren't. They're just literalists where they wanna be. And then all you got to do is point one like this out. Like, oh, you didn't really mean you got a plank in your eye. I go, hmm, interesting how your hermeneutic changed the moment that you couldn't fit planks in eyes. Uh, but you got a plank in your own eye. Five, hypocrite, exclamation point. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now watch this transition, on, and this belongs, and it feels like it's its own spot, probably deserves its own lesson, but look at six. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. And very rarely is Matthew 7, 6 quoted with the first part, because when you say Jesus told the story about having a speck in your neighbor's eye and a beam in yours, we don't follow it up with, don't cast your pearls before the swine. We treat that as if it sets out here on its own in a whole different passage. But I think you can probably tell that we coupled them together because the, they do actually bleed over. This isn't a hard left that Jesus is making. It's just that we struggle to really understand what he means in verse 6 because we're lost in verses 1 to 5. And part of the reason that we're lost in verses 1 to 5 is because we have misunderstood judgment and we've also in some respects misunderstood the planks and the specks. So let's go to work. Matthew 7, 1. Promise we'll get to 6. But you got to get your way there. You got to build this case to understand what Jesus is trying to say. And here's how we started. Judge not that you be not judged. Matthew 7, 1 is a verse people love to quote with no context at all. They just love to say, you know, Bible says we're not supposed to judge. When people say the Bible says we're not supposed to judge, this is the verse they think they're quoting. Matthew 7, 1, Bible says we're not supposed to judge. Yes, granted, Jesus does tell you not to judge, but he does it with a caveat. It's not as if you can't do it. It's not as if you don't even have the right to do it. Because just because you have the right to do something doesn't mean you should do something. All right, that's rights with responsibilities. 
And part of the responsibility of having the right to judge is being responsible enough to know when and how that should be done. And here's even more important, when it shouldn't be and what's the wrong way to do it. And so Jesus says, judge not so that you're not judged. It's not as if judging is the problem. The problem is that when you judge, the judgment is going to come back to you. This is the, the reciprocation of judgment. Whatever I give to you, you will in turn, whether you realize it or not, bring it back to me. So with what judgment you judge, you'll be judged. And then the measure of it that you use is the way it's going to be measured back to you. Let's look at judge first. Technically in the Greek, to call something into question. It's not necessarily to make a judgment, but it is to call into question the action. It's to really go into an investigative mode about how you can do what it is you're doing. If I, in the context, if I'm judging what you're doing, I'm calling into question your actions, your thoughts, your activities. And Jesus tops it off with, the unit of measurement that you use will be used on you and I throw in will be used against you because that's the whole point of telling you to not judge. However you do that is exactly how it's going to come back to you to be used either pro or con, to be used either for you or against you, which gives me the idea that it's probably best to err on the side of mercy. Because if I err on the side of mercy and what I give is eventually going to come back to me, wouldn't I rather you be merciful to me when I need it than you to be judgmental to me when I need it? And so Jesus is, by the way, this is in the same context as do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Why? Because you want to live in a world where what happens to you is what you wish would happen to you. Create that world. In some respect, you are the creator of worlds. You dwell in the world you create. And so err on the side of mercy so that when you need mercy, mercy is what comes back to you. So when you call into question what's going on around you, and you will do this, by the way, you can't help it. You make judgments every second of your life. You make judgments on the way people think, the way people dress, the way people act why they do what they do. Social media has made it even easier to make judgments. Unqualified judgments. Judgments no one even asked your opinion, but we like to be quick to have them, to give our thoughts into the middle of whatever the situation is. But just know that the unit of measurement that you choose will be the unit of measurement that comes back to you. Now, to round this out, I wanna to jump to the Lucan version of the sermon often called the Sermon on the Plain, where you take some of the same concepts of the Sermon on the Mount, you refilter them through a different lens and you get, you get this different voice. It's still Jesus, but you get... Maybe he told it twice. Maybe Luke's version heard something Matthew's version didn't. But I want to show it to you in a short form from Luke chapter 6, verse 37. And you're going to notice some of the same concepts from Matthew 7 with a little more flesh on the bone. Judge not and you shall not be judged. And then Jesus starts to add to it. Condemn not and you shall not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure. 
Good measure, a measurement of good. What did Jesus say in Matthew 7? The measure that you measure it out will be measured back to you, which is where we're going here. A good measure which will be pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your bosom. Will literally be put where you can carry it. That's the Greek. Really, it's the pocket on the front of your coat. They're going, it, it's put in a place where you can carry it as it's your own possession. Say it that way. For with the same measure that you use, it's going to be measured back to you. And I brought this out to you before, but I wanted to bring this scripture to your attention tonight for the obvious reason that A, it looks just like the Sermon on the Mount version at the beginning, but B, because it uses Jesus's me whatever measure you measure will be measured back to you, and it rounds it out in a way that we don't often think about. Because if you're like me, you're raised in atmospheres where this was used without verse 37. We didn't quote that part. Instead, we started with verse 38 with the keyword give, and we thought that meant this is the verse you use when you take up an offering. Because if a verse starts with the word give, then obviously that has to do with you giving money. And so I can't tell you the times I heard Luke 6.38 used to say this, hey, we're going to take up the offering, and then here's a little spiel about tithes and why we need this money and what we're going to try to accomplish. And go, You know, the Bible says, here it comes, the Bible says, and man, if I've had a dollar for every time I heard somebody preface something with the Bible says and then completely take the Bible out of context, I'd be a wealthy man. But the Bible says, give and it shall be given unto you. Press down, shaken together, are men going to give unto your bosom? In other words, if you'll give a little bit, and then we'd always round it out with this. If you'll give what you can today, we're going to pray over this and believe that God's going to be true to his word and that God's going to make people pour into you and give into your life more than you can stand. And then sometimes we'd get a little nervous that it wasn't going to work out in the financial realm, and then we'd spiritualize it at the very end of the prayer and go, and Lord, may it, if it doesn't come back to us in money, may it come back to us in kindness, or may it come back to us in goodness, or may it come back to us in joy, and may they press down. I, I loved how we had all kinds of faith when it was time to take up the offering, and then we tapered it off as we got near the end because you know we wanted to include everyone that didn't have any money to give. I hope you can tell if you were to add the previous verse that this verse doesn't have many things to do with money. In fact, this verse has everything to do with the previous verse. Whatever it is you give. And what is it you give? Well, sometimes you give judgment, and sometimes you give condemnation, and sometimes you give forgiveness. But I can promise you this. Whichever one you choose to peddle in, it's coming back at you, man. So if you are judgmental, get ready. People are going to pour it on you, press down, shaken together, running over. Is it going to be yours to carry? And you're going to have to carry it because there's no one else going to carry that judgment for you. And if you are a forgiving person, get ready because forgiveness will be what people offer you. And so simply put, Jesus is telling you, however you measure it out is how it'll be measured back. Here's the thing. You get to set the rules. All right. Jesus doesn't set the rules here. You get to set the rules. By creating the world you want to live in. One of the things that has really struck me in the Sermon on the Mount is how much Jesus is showing us new creations how to create the world we want to live in. Simple. Here it is in front of you. If you can make this choice to create this kind of world, is this the kind of world that you want? You might say, well, that's a hard world to build. Of course it is. 
World building is never easy, especially not the kind of world you want to live in. It's easy to tear the Garden of Eden down, just eat from the wrong tree. It's much harder to tend and keep the garden. And so creating the world you want to live in is up to you. The measure with which you measure it out is the measurement with which it comes back to you. So let's jump back in then to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 3 and go to the specks and the planks because I got to own this plank that's in my eye. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look. A plank is in your own eye. I want to go ahead and give you this next paragraph because this really lays out where I want to be here. Jesus does not indicate that we might have a plank in our eye, thus we should be cautious because that's exactly how we teach that. Be careful. Whenever you find something in someone else, you might have a plank in your eye. Where'd you get the word might? Jesus didn't say you might have a plank in your eye. Where did you get... Watch out, if you have a plank in your eye, you need to get rid of it. Because how many of you know if Jesus said might or if, we'd never see one? Hey, he didn't say might and if, and we still can't see it. Jesus doesn't say when you see a speck in your brother's eye, you might have a plank in yours, so be careful. No, he says, you, have your, you see a speck in your brother's eye, how do you not see the plank? that is in your own eye. Not a maybe. He tells us that we do indeed have a plank in our eye and that's why we see the speck in our neighbor. I really felt the Holy Spirit drop this in me today and say, son, the reason you can see the speck is what you think is a speck in his eye is the shadow of the plank coming out of your own. It becomes easy to spot in your neighbor everything wrong with you. Why? Because Jesus said the moment you see something in them, when are you going to deal with the plank in your own eye? It looks so tiny over there in them because it's just the dis, it's all you can see of what is wrong in your own eye. This is not a maybe. I want to just stay here for a second and I want you to think about this with me. You don't get to act like there's no plank. Now I wrestled with this. I worked this over and over and I went, there's gotta be a back door here. Jesus is not, surely not telling me that if I can spot the speck, surely he doesn't mean the only way I can spot the speck is if I have a plank. Surely he means that if you're in the business of spotting specks, make sure you don't have a plank. That's how I've always preached it. It's how I've always quoted it. When I just blindly quote this in the middle of a sermon, and I go, you know, the Bible says, watch out. You think your neighbor's got a speck. Be careful you don't have a plank in your own eye. No. But rather, the moment you see the speck is when you know you have a plank. It's how you found the speck. The speck was just the far off distant end of the plank proceeding from your own eye. Now, if that's the case, then let's start over. Judge not lest you be judged. Could be a really good idea to stop it because if you start spotting stuff in your neighbor, it's a good sign that there's something in you first. All right. Before we really dissect that, and man, does that need dissected. Let's deal with I, because why does he pick the I? You know, 
Is he just being funny? I mean, yeah, because beams aren't hanging out of people's eye sockets. You can see that maybe someone has a speck in their eye. You know, that happens to all of us. The beam part's kind of funny, but why the eye? It's not just a random illustration, by the way. That's where I started. You start with it and go, hmm, okay. Is it random that Jesus picks the eye? Am I overanalyzing it? One of the ways, by the way, to be a good Bible student is if you want to find out if something possibly is random, find out if it's appeared anywhere else. If it hasn't, you might be dealing with something random. So by the way, when you get to the story of the prodigal son, we just dealt with the prodigal son last month in the monthly meeting. You get to the prodigal son and there's a lost kid. Maybe it's random until you back up a little bit and you realize that there was 100 sheep, 99 of them were fine, one was lost, there's one with some coins, one coin was lost. Guy finds his one sheep, throws a party. Woman finds her one coin, throws a party. Man finds his one kid, throws a party. Is it random now? No, now it means what the coin story meant and what the lamb story meant. You jam them all together, you got yourself a, tri a, a, a story with three different illustrations. Good way to study any speech, any conversation. You don't take things out of context. You hear what so-and-so said? Yeah, but what'd they say right before that? Oh, I don't care. Did you see what they said? They put that on Twitter. Well, yeah, but you can't put the whole speech on Twitter. That's not, I mean, no, but you put the one thing in there you can take out of context. <laughs> we love to do that. So why does Jesus mention an eye? If you backtrack just a little bit to Matthew 6, notice we're one chapter ahead of our spot, Jesus said this, which seemed obtuse and out of nowhere. But then it starts to get its legs in Matthew 7, when Jesus says in Matthew 6, 22, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now this little passage right here, has caused a lot of problems for commentators because they can't really figure out why your eye is a lamp because a lamp is what projects light. I mean, it's been difficult to try to figure out how opening your eyes becomes a lamp to someone else. But sometimes I think we're, we're overworking texts just a little bit. Particularly, I think one of the reasons we struggle with this is because we don't put it together with Matthew 7 where Jesus tries to tell you, hey, don't judge. When you do, how are you going to do it? You're going to open your eyes. And when you open your eyes, you're going to find a speck in your neighbor's eye. Because when you look into his eye, you're going to see a problem. But just know that if you can find a problem in your neighbor, it's because the problem starts with you. What would happen if you fixed your own eye? If your eye was light or good, then you would be walking in a world full of light. But if your eye is bad, then you would be walking in a world full of darkness. So, see what God sees and your being is full of light. See the evil or listen to the voice of accusation and you become engulfed in darkness. So let's start there. See what God sees and the whole life becomes full of the light of God. See only what you can see and your light becomes dark and you become judgmental. And the judgments is on your neighbor, but then the judgment's always on you too, right? Because whatever you measure out gets measured back. So if your eye's just looking for problems, I see what his problem is. That's easy, by the way. Jesus told me that if I can see what his problem is, what I ought to know is that the problem starts on this end. <laughs> the problem is that my eye is only spotting what is evil. 
And if my eye is only spotting what is evil, then I'm walking in darkness. So why are so many Christians so miserable? Because all they use their eye to do is spot evil. All the time. What's wrong with every single person in the world? What's wrong with the church? What's wrong with the country? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with... It's always what's wrong. And Jesus warned us, if your eye, which is supposed to be the light, the thing that it, what comes through that eye gate either illuminates your life or darkens your life. Let's start there. So when you open your eyes on the world and you see it through the eyes of God, then light begins to penetrate the darkness. But when you see it through the eyes of evil... And what I call evil is accusation. And I use this phrase. Accusation is the equipment of the satanic. And what I mean by that is exactly what it sounds like. The role of Satan, who is the accuser. Satan, the accuser, the adversary. His role is to accuse. That's why he's called the accuser. What's his weaponry? Accusation. When you use accusation, you do the equipment of the satanic. So pedal accusation and do it in the name of God even. And what are you doing? You're doing the work of the enemy. Oh boy, the worst kind of work of the enemy is under the mask of in the name of God. When we are proclaiming as if it is the gospel, a world seen through a dark eye. And when you see the world through a dark eye, it doesn't make you discerning. It makes you satanic. I know we, we, we think it hold, it's some high spiritual regard to be able to see sin. I've even heard people described, great men and women of God, they go, oh, brother so-and-so's coming, he's a great man of God. Boy, don't, be, don't come in here with anything wrong in your life. He can see the things going on. He'll call it out. Let me tell you, if you go into a place and a man gets up and calls out sin, you're dealing with someone who is operating illegally in the kingdom of God. And the only way you can get by with it is using the power of the enemy. Because the Holy Spirit does not peddle accusation. How can he witness? The book of Hebrews says he witnesses what Jesus did on the cross. How can the Holy Spirit witness what Jesus did on the cross where Jesus pulled all judgment into himself and then turn around and be the accuser over you and point out everything that you're doing wrong? How is that possible? The role of darkness. Jesus told us if your eye is dark, the whole body's going to be dark. What's going to happen is you're going to believe that the world is darker and darker as you see darkness through your eye gate. That eye that opens, that ought to be a light, that lights the way of the world. And by the way of the world, I mean your world. Because you aren't responsible for lighting other people's worlds. That's Jesus. But you have to take responsibility over your own. Which is why it isn't your role to judge or to call into question what others are and who they are and how they think and how they live and what they do. Because the moment that you do, Jesus doesn't say you might have a plank. Jesus says, get ready. I promise you have a plank. There's an issue in your life. It's why you're so quick to try to find that issue somewhere else. It took me many years to come to the realization that what we plow away at and hammer away at and work so hard at in Christian circles is almost always reflective of what we are working so hard at in private. It's because we have found the speck in our neighbor's eye 
And the only way we were able to spot that speck is it looks a whole lot like the shadow end of the plank <laughs> hanging out of our own. So why does Jesus use the eye? Because he's already set you up with the eye. He's already said if the eye is light, the whole world around you will be good. If the eye is dark, the whole world around you will be dark. Now, by the way, don't use the eye to spot specks because all you'll be doing is walking in darkness. I can't say this enough. Accusation is the work of the enemy. So stop being accusatory and stop accepting the accusations of the enemy. And I don't care who's peddling them. Stop accepting it. Rebuke it in Jesus' name. It's not for you. Accusation doesn't belong on the children of God. He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You are children of the light. People want to often want to rebut this or, or, or push back against this by saying, well, how are people going to know when they're doing wrong? I truly think we think people are absolutely stupid when it comes to following the Holy Spirit. I, I think we think people are absolutely incapable of listening to the Holy Spirit. And maybe it's because we don't teach people much about the Holy Spirit, but I don't know any of us who get by with evil, that the Holy Spirit isn't pointing you going, this isn't you. I don't know, I don't know one believer that, hasn't, that doesn't hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit said, this isn't you. You're one of the sons of God. It doesn't take someone from the outside accusing and pointing out all that is wrong with you for you to walk in the light. I think a lot of us have tried to take that role up under the guise of spiritualism. And really it is that we just like being the ones that get to find specs. It's not the role of the call of the Holy Spirit. It's not what we get to do. It's not who we are. So what do we need to do? Matthew 7, 5. Hypocrite. That's a pretty big accusation, by the way. You just fire out hypocrite. I mean, hypocrite, typically someone who says one thing and does the other. But that's not the Greek usage of hypocrite, by the way. The hypocrite was a character in the Greek theater. The hypocrite was the character who wore a mask so that they could play multiple roles in a small cast. So you might have four actors, but you need six. So two of you wear masks and they play the role of the hypocrite because hypocrite meant a mask used in the theater. So when Jesus calls him a hypocrite, it's not you, you say you'll do one thing, but then you do another. That's our definition. The Greek theater definition of hypocrite is you pitch yourself as if you are someone else, but underneath you are not what you pitch yourself to be. So Jesus says hypocrite because you're pitching yourself to be qualified to remove specks. I'm the speck remover. I have found what's wrong with you. Thus saith the Lord. And Jesus goes, hypocrite, if you spot specks, it isn't the work of the Holy Spirit. Right? How could it be? Accusation's a tool of the satanic, not the tool of the spirit. So you're pitching yourself as if you're being used of God. That's not being used of God. The only way you found the speck is because you finally saw the shadow end of the plank hanging out of your own eye. And it's time to recognize that that's what's going on. So here's what you need to do first. Go back. First, which tells me there's a second. 
don't forget this. <laughs> you use first as a writer because you've got more than one thing to talk about. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you're going to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So if you're really into the speck removal business, you're really excited about cleaning up everyone, then the last part of verse five was for you. You do finally get to do it. Look at that. You do finally get to remove the speck from your brother's eye, but when? Only when you can see clearly. And if you could see clearly, then your, light, your eye would be full of light and you'd be walking in the light. The problem is when you walk in the light, the light doesn't point out specks. Are you making the connection? The light doesn't point out specks. So how'd you find the speck? Hmm. The speck spotting is evidence that you got a plank in your eye. So here's the bad news for speck spotters. You do get to remove specks, but what you're going to find is once you do the harder work of removing the plank from your own eye, you can't see the speck anymore because your eye's full of light. And if your eye's full of light, your world's full of light. And you're not in the darkness business. How could Jesus look at the adulterous woman and not see her adultery? Well, he of course saw her adultery. But how could he not stone her to death? He's supposed to stone her to death. Because his eyes see the light in the world. And so what he sees in the woman caught in the act of adultery is opportunity. Neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Not the possibility that he can today be the speck remover. Because to find the speck means to remove the plank. Here's what you might find. First things first. Take care of your business. You are of little value where you have not self-evaluated. Let's start right there for a moment. You have very little to offer the world if you haven't self-evaluated where you are in the world. All right? One of the most important things that you can do is take inventory as to where you stand. Because once you know where you stand, you can orient yourself in the world. A lot of us are trying to change the world that can't change our own socks. You know? Like, th this is a real issue well, it's a real issue for all of us because we all got ideas about how to fix everything, if you just ask us, like real genius ideas. And yet, a little self-inventory shows that we haven't even got our own stuff cleaned up. Now, if you wait around until everything is perfect in your life, you're probably not going to do anything on the outside. And that's not Jesus' point, is that everything has to be cleaned up here. But what he is telling you is that you have to take care of whatever you have to take care of before you can do anything to take care of someone else. When you remove the plank and you can see clearly, you might find... I put might just because I'm being nice. But the real... Part of me says, here's how I really want to write this. When you remove the plank and you see clearly, you will always most definitely 100% of the time find out that there was actually no speck in your neighbor's eye after all. That's what I really want to say. But I'll acquiesce and say, it's possible that there's no speck there. The truth is, if you got rid of the plank, you couldn't find it. Because your light would be full of, your eye would be full of light. Now, this doesn't go down as easy now. When Jesus goes, yeah, you know, if you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, 
Make sure you don't have a plank. No, 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 no. You see the speck in your neighbor's eye. You got some work to do. So here's the, the real simple reality of it. If you can look around and find out what's wrong, you got some work to do. Oh, no, 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 no. You don't have work to do on what's wrong. You have some work to do at home. Because there's a really good chance that the, way, the reason you spotted it is because it looks all too darn familiar. You know, like it looks a little familiar as to how I think and how I feel and how I am. There is always a self-evaluation that is necessary that does not bump up against your righteousness in, by faith in Christ. We have pushed a little bit in grace circles against self-evaluating ideas because the fear that by self-evaluating will somehow slip back under the law of performance. And of course, there's always the option for you to believe that you could be righteous on your own works. But the veil's been removed from your eyes. I don't think you'll ever go back under the veil of thinking that you could be justified by your own works. But surely, you know that because you are God's righteousness, it does not mean that there are still not some things for you to do and to take care of in your own life. There are plenty of moments in the Bible that give us indication that there's something we need to do. I don't know if there's one any more stark or important than, Mark, than Matthew 7. That if you see the speck, take care of the beam. You don't know why this is titled the plank in my eye? Because I'm really pretty good at finding specks. I've, I've learned that about myself. I'm good at evaluating what the problem is. I can listen to you and go, I got, I got it figured out. I know what you probably need to do. I heard, I can tell you a, a couple of verses and here's an illustration and here's a sermon you ought to go listen to. This will fix you. And yet, I know as I wrestled this today for you, the Spirit was clear with me that the speck is not to be the plank in your eye or our eye, but my eye, because I have to self-evaluate. I'm in the final. I've hit the quarter pole in Jonah for, for you horse racing fans. That means you only got one lap to go. And I'm at the, I've hit the quarter pole and I've left the turn and I'm moving at least into that back straightaway. I can, the adrenaline's pumping. I can feel the end coming. And I had Jonah on the beach, covered in whale vomit. And uh, the darkness is past. Nineveh is ahead. And the Bible says, and the Lord spoke to Jonah the second time. And I was concentrating on the second time. And then noticed that when the Lord spoke to him the second time, he changed the wording just enough to let me know that he did it on purpose. Because when he spoke to Jonah the first time, he told him to go straightway to Nineveh. But when he spoke to him the second time, he had to tell him to get up first. Arise, get up, and go to Nineveh. And you go, ah, that's just semantics. He's probably laying there on the beach. Yes, he is laying there on the beach. There's no doubt about it. And he's covered in whale vomit. And there's nothing in him that wants to go to Nineveh. But he certainly didn't want to go back in that whale. And I really, as I worked on that, just... I think it's really why this one ran up the flagpole in the Sermon on the Mount to me. Because God's message didn't change to Jonah. But the second time included, fix yourself and then get to Nineveh. 
because there's something in you that needs fixed if you're going to do any good in Nineveh. And isn't that just like Jesus? Oh, we go, yes, but he's the one who transforms us. Absolutely. But he leaves to us to fix whatever it is we can fix. He leaves to us to work on what needs to be worked on. You don't resurrect yourself, but you take grave clothes off. Hey, loose him and let him go. I'll bring Lazarus out of the tomb, but I won't take Lazarus's grave clothes off. You're going to have to do that. Or maybe in your own life, you're going to have to do that. And maybe I can help do that. And you can help me to do that. But the point is, is that we must evaluate whatever it is we can fix and then fix it. So that we become more valuable to those around us. What's the alternative? Don't fix anything. Just go be whatever you are to the world and say to hell with them. You can take me as I am or you can reject me. And that's how most of us choose to do it. We just, that's the world we choose to create is the world of everybody can just accept me or reject me. We go, only God can judge me. This is what I am. And if that's no good for you, fine. And it just doesn't sound a lot like Jesus. It certainly doesn't sound a lot like what he tells me I'm supposed to do with the me problem. My plank that's jutting out of my eye socket. And he goes, fix it. And you'll find that the world looks differently if you could use both of your eyes. <laughs> and so self-evaluate, figure it out. You'll find there's no speck in your neighbor after all. Let's land on that apparent hard left at Matthew 7, 6. What do we do with the dogs and the pigs of Matthew 7, 6? Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Now, I, you know I like to do this. I always like to tell you what our common sort of snap interpretation of this verse is. And that is that uh, anytime we share something with somebody and they don't accept it, we like to be able to just decide that they're a dog and a pig. And they go, oh, they didn't like it? Well, you know, the Bible says, don't cast your pearls before the swine. That was on me. Shouldn't have done that. You know, they, they, they aren't ready for it. And so everyone that doesn't like you is an automatic pig. That's a really easy way to go through life, by the way. That's the you can go to hell if you don't like me attitude. That's like, I'm going to tell you whatever I tell you. You don't like it. That's on you. Because Jesus said, maybe you're a pig. Maybe you're a dog. You can work that out with God. Right? You can work that out with God. I... I gave you the truth, bless God. You didn't like it. I shouldn't have cast before the pearls before the swine. Okay, Jesus is working with previous information. Part of his previous information is that the outside world to a Jew was a dog. And the swine was an animal you didn't touch, you didn't cultivate, and you didn't eat. In other words, these are the outsider. These are the people who don't understand you. These are the people who don't appreciate you. These are the people outside of that covenant. It would have looked a little bit like one of their Proverbs. Proverbs that they probably had memorized. Proverbs 9, 7, and 8 gives you this piece of advice. Now watch this. He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself. He who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Negative, 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 positive. Fourth line. Rebuke a wise man, he's going to love you. So... If it's a scoffer, if you correct them, you're going to be ashamed. You rebuke a wicked man, you're going to get harmed. You correct a scoffer, he's going to hate you. Finally, you rebuke a wise man, he's going to love you. So in most cases, negative pushback. That leads me to this thought. 
when you've done the hard work of plank removal, that does not give you permission to cast your insight onto everyone that you see because you've been in the plank removal business and therefore you got all of these pearls of wisdom. That's why Jesus said your pearls before this one. You got pearls of wisdom. Even from a good place, your thoughts might need to stay with you because most people are not ready for correction. And do you want to know why they're not ready for correction? Because they got a beam in their own eye, which is exactly where you started. Looks like a speck from your end. The moment your eye becomes clear, you can't even find that. But we're all dragging something around and we're not ready to be corrected in it because people don't pull beams out of your eye, you do. Let me say it again. People don't pull beams out of your eye. You pull beams out of your eye. And so they're not going to take you fixing them because they're not ready for that. So here's the kicker. Stop blaming people for their rejection of your message. You were warned. <laughs> you were warned. Careful how you present it. If you throw pearls in front of swine, stop blaming pigs. What idiot throws pearls in front of swine? Maybe you should have recognized they were swine. Maybe you should have recognized the value of your pearls. Maybe you shouldn't be the kind of person who willy-nilly throws pearls into a pig pen. This isn't a everyone that doesn't like me is a pig. This is a surely I've grown up enough to pull enough planks out of my eyes that I know to keep my pearls to myself. Because the shame or the embarrassment or the hatred that comes back on me is often coming back on me because I didn't keep my pearls to myself. Because not everything I have has to be shared. And if I only share it because I'm trying to fix you, it's the first indication that I got a plank hanging out of my eye. So we need to take a big pause, start over, and start removing planks. I got some self-inventory to do. And if I can finally grow up to the place that I pulled the plank out of my eye, I surely would stop throwing pearls in front of pigs because that ain't how you, that's not how you fix pigs. Simply put, what about the righteous man or the wise man? Let's land there, Psalms 141.5. Let the righteous strike me, it's gonna be like a kindness. Let the righteous rebuke me, it would be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. For still my prayer is against the deeds of the wicked. Look at this. If the righteous struck me, that would be a kindness. Let the righteous man be the one that rebukes me. That will be like excellent oil. My head would not refuse it. If I speak from a place of righteousness, that's your only hope of healing. So if I'm going to speak into your life, I got to speak from a place of righteousness. Not I'm right but a place of His righteousness. So if I can't spot His righteousness in you and on you, I might need to keep it to myself. But if I can speak of His righteousness over you and in you and on you, then that will be like a kindness and an excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. Point to His righteousness. Here's what I, if you'll point to His righteousness, people will accept correction. We're accepting it in this room. We're accepting it from each other. You're accepting it in this place. 
because we're pointing to His righteousness. If I just point out what I think's wrong with you, it needs to start with me. There's a lot here. I know it's six little verses and you're going to just fly through it to the next story. But there's a lot here. I land with this. The plank is in my eye. I self-evaluate, talk to the Father. When I spot that plank or see what it might be, my only hope is not plank removal through works or effort, but to start with who I am in Christ and who He is in me and clean up what needs to be cleaned up as directed by the Holy Spirit. When that happens, my light is, my eye is full of light and my world becomes full of light as well. So a good place of self-inventory is how dark is your world? And if it is awfully dark and depressing and discouraging, start by shifting your gaze onto the author and the finisher of your faith. See if you spot a few planks in your eye. Take them to him and go to work on them. And once you get those in him, see if you can still find the specks. I got a feeling they'll start to vanish. And it won't be because everybody in the world got their stuff straight. It'll be because your eye finally started showing the lamp that it should be. Let's pray. There's a lot to pray about, right? (laughs) Father, thank you. Thank you again for a word that I have worked on in my own spirit and wrestle with even as I stand here and talk to your children and know that there is always room to judge someone else, but there's never cause. And wherever I think I can, Father, show me the area that is glaring in me so that I can bring it to you and you can transform my darkness to light I never cease to be amazed at how through fresh revelations of you, I have a hard time finding what's wrong in the world around me. May we be a little more this way every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.